Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm glad to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll discuss the latest inflation numbers, which show that Canada is heading in the right direction with the annual rate at 2.9% and back within range for the first time in months. We'll also discuss a new study out of the University of British Columbia on Canadian healthcare spending and how we're getting it wrong. Amanda, thanks as always for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Good to see you. Let's start with January's inflation numbers, which are lower than anticipated by many economists. There's a lot of good news embedded in these numbers, Amanda. Grocery prices are back to historic norms. Fewer than half of the items tracked for inflation are still above 3%. What's your reaction? Yeah, I mean, it was hard to find uh, bad news in this inflation report. Uh, every bit of data was good, including you know that headline number, which does include the effect of gas prices dropping. Um, so you know, take out that grain of salt as we're supposed to, but down below three percent. That's great news. And by the way, we all buy gas, so uh, the stats can likes to strip strip it out, but um, <laughs> I tend to put it in my car. So that's a good number. The the place, of course, that we're going to remain concerned is uh, any inflationary pressure above the banned. So that 3.4 on food is still uncomfortable for many. But as you note, inside the, the food data, there are categories that are starting to look much better uh, and come even drop. And therefore, we're, consumers will have some choice about how, what they buy and, and, and what we eat. And that'll be a little bit of a relief. The real problem, of course, is mortgage rates uh, and rent pressures. Both of those categories are extremely high. And there's nothing you can do about mortgage rates being up 27% year over year because of interest rates until interest rates reverse. But that's a real pain point for a lot of people. That will hurt our economy. Right. So we watch this to how much consumer spending will we expect as people's incomes uh, free up from some of these price pressures. That will be the good news. I think we're a ways off it. I don't know about you. People are still very excited about, you know, second quarter uh, talking about a spring rate cut. I'm not yet in that camp. I think sometime this year, maybe, but um, I wouldn't expect anything in the summer. Well, let me put that precisely to you anticipated my next question, because it has expectedly led to a debate about whether we might see the Bank of Canada cut its rates as early as, as April. Mm-hmm. Um, you just set out that you, you think that that's a bit premature. What, what, why don't you elaborate a bit on, on your thinking? Yeah, I mean, I, and again, I, you know, the, the bank will do what the bank does. I'm not going to pretend I have any special knowledge. Uh, I would just say that uh, we know previous rate cuts take some time to work through. So the impact yes. of those cuts are still sort of being um, being sorted out in our economy. But we definitely have seen stickiness on wages. And of course, price increases in rent aren't one-offs. Rents don't ever drop. So the inflation we've seen in some places, including those two things, will stay with us. That's a new reset of the bar higher. And that does create a, a kind of sort of quasi-permanent inflation. So to me, 
uh, we we definitely aren't there yet. And I don't see this as a bank that's characteristic of one that will spike the ball early. I think they will wait uh, until there's really solid evidence in really key places uh, that that they've achieved their goal, or at least the glide path, path is there. And, you know, I keep hearing that our central bank governor saying he doesn't see inflation hitting target till 2025. And do you cut ahead of that? There are some reasons why you might, including a big recession, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't see that happening either. So I would say, you know, towards, you know, maybe the fall would be a reasonable expectation and maybe a little cut, but nothing major. I tend to agree with that. Tiff Macklem and his team are ultimately humans, and I, I can't help but think that they've been affected by the past criticism that they were too slow to move on inflation. And it seems to me one of the consequences of that is that they may be more cautious about, as you say, spiking the football the only thing worse than ongoing inflation is telling the Canadian public and the the economy that it, inflation is over, only to have it rear its ugly head again. And so, for that reason, I think you're. I, I would tend to agree with your instinct that well, we'll probably see rate cuts at some point this year. I think those talking about uh, cuts as early as April are probably a bit premature. I want to take up something you mentioned earlier because I think it's really important and 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 risks being undiscussed in the context of today's otherwise pretty promising numbers. And that is that while inflation is heading in the right direction, prices are still higher, quite a bit higher, in fact, than they would have been had inflation stayed below 2%. Affordability, in other words, isn't going away as a, as a political issue. In, in that sense, Amanda, I wonder how much of today's announcement may seem disconnected for some Canadians. I mean, I think it will. And I think we're going to keep having this conversation that we've been having, which is there, even when we say, oh, the economy looks good and we're avoiding a recession, we also see tens of thousands of people laid off. Uh, we see people really struggling with their current cost of living. So yes to the affordability problem. And then even within that, if we drill down to the fact that it's rent and mortgage costs, this is our housing. Pro our housing problem is now at the center of our economy. Uh, why does that make so much sense? Well, because housing is the center of our economy. We have managed in this country to make housing our biggest and most important sector. So congratulations uh, when it's not doing well or when it's not performing the way we want it to on a social basis, it will become very consuming. Uh, and that's where we are at. How do we do that? I mean, I don't know if you and I was very struck by a reminder um, of how long ago the Department of Finance and this government was looking at this problem. 2016, apparently, according to Bill Morneau's book, where they were saying we should really address affordability. It's creating this massive uh, and growing social inequity between haves and haves nots and people in the housing market and people outside the housing market. And we it did the opposite of addressing it, right? We, we let it get worse and run away with us. The pandemic made that happen in part, but we have created a structure of inequity in this market and I don't see how to solve it without some real human pain. Yeah, you know, one thing that struck me in the past uh, few weeks, Amanda, is uh, Tiff Macklem's observation that the Bank of Canada can't be relied upon to solve for Canada's underlying housing challenges, as you say. Mm -hmm. what, what's interesting about that is I remember not that long ago when I was in Ottawa, when there was a sense that um, that housing prices were really a function of the low interest rate environment, and all it would take was for interest rates to return to something approximating an historical norm uh, for housing to reach something of, a, of an equilibrium. And of course, a lot has happened since then, including, as you say, the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, the extraordinary population growth that we've had over the past couple of years, and, and, and various other factors, such now... That this old that's old notion that the Bank of Canada could solve for uh, for our housing problems with just a couple of percentage point increases in the interest rate seems a, a bit naive. And and so you effectively have 
the the government, you know, sort of hoping that Tiff Macklem can do a lot of the work and Tiff Macklem saying, well, wait a second, uh, the fundamentals of housing now are are a consequence of a series of choices that policymakers have made on immigration and 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 and, and other and other uh, policy areas. So, uh, you know, why don't you just talk a bit about what a path to equilibrium looks like, or, or even if that's the right way to think about this question today? Yeah, I mean, I think it is important that we all reframe that, that our central bank has, and and it's funny that you use the word relied upon, because um, I'm not sure we could ever have relied upon them, but definitely they this is not sort of in their control anymore, and they're clear about that. That's not to say, of course, that there isn't an impact of lower rates. And some of the, the best work I've seen recently, and I had him on my show last week, uh, Charles St. Arnaud from Alberta Central, you may have seen it, but really drilling into what do we mean by returning to uh, equilibrium? What is affordability when it comes to housing? And the, the data he's producing is shocking in terms of the degree to which house prices have to come down to create an affordable market or incomes have to go up. Um, but he, in both cases, adjusts for a normalization of rates. So when we get interest rates and therefore mortgage rates back to a long-term historical norm, let's say 4% is the one he's using, the difference in how much house prices have to come down at, or incomes up is material. It's like 12% uh, less of a house price decline, and I think 2% less of an income, or two years less on an income growth uh, basis over 10 years. But the point is, it's still a lot. He's still saying, if you if, if you really want affordability, if nothing else changes, house prices have to drop. Is the bottom? What I took away from it is house prices have to drop mm. because incomes might rise, but they'd have to rise 4% a year for 10 years to get us to equilibrium, and that's hard to picture. Um, but house prices may have to fall up to 40% to get us back to equilibrium. Now into that, of course, we'll throw the supply demand picture. We're going to build homes, of course. Are we going to build them fast enough? Well, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't believe in Santa Claus anymore either. I don't see any evidence <laughs> of us getting there. Um, so I'm not super optimistic on that. I think house price decline seems like the most obvious you know, solution, except, of course, we do have an unbalanced market. So it's hard to see why prices would come down when there's more buyers than sellers. Yeah, we'll come to the subject of, of that inequity and how it relates to a broader questions of intergenerational equity in our economy and society when we turn the conversation to, to healthcare spending. But if I could just stay a minute on the interest rate announcement and where you think we're headed, I must admit, Amanda, that late last year, I participated in a survey that uh, Politico Canada ha had uh, about interest rates and inflation. And I was, uh, I, I guess, in hindsight, the most pessimistic uh, of the participants. I thought um, that inflation would uh, be a persistent issue in 2024 and, and that rates would be higher than some of the other participants anticipated. Part of my thinking was the 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 potential for a, a geopolitical or, or global shock, including um, something occurring within the Middle East or ongoing issues in uh, in Europe. What, in your mind, are the risks that listeners and viewers ought to be following that could halt or even the reverse the progress uh, reflected in today's numbers? I think it's probably reasonable to say that the unknown geopolitical risk is still, um, I would put that top of a list, uh, probably. And I would say that particularly because we do have this extremely robust US economy uh, that will drag us along, um, despite all our best efforts to uh, thwart economic progress. Um, we, we do have the, the uh, amazing resilience of that consumer south of the border. And then if we want to think a little bit longer term, 
but it's not that much longer term, but this new investment in productivity enhancing technology that is right at our doorstep, um, all of the various forms, AI of course being one of them, but uh, there's just a whole host of technologies that will that, that ushers in that I think we will also benefit from. So I'm giving you the glass half full uh, argument because it's so impossible to, I think, really guess at. Um, the problems we have, I think, Sean, in Canada are less about those sort of exogenous shocks that'll throw us into a tailspin like a pandemic or supply chain interruptions because of Russia invading Ukraine, and more the slow and painful um, own goal that we've been uh, that we've been per perpetuating here with lack of business investment, um, lack of risk taking, uh, and just sort of a general kind of deterioration in our entrepreneurial um, ability here. That's not to say we don't have entrepreneurs, but we do hamstring ourselves a little bit by creating this environment where businesses don't take risks. Because of course, businesses have to take risks not just on themselves but on other entrepreneurs. So I feel like we're in a we're in a kind of a bad place. But we could get again dragged out of it as we we have in the past. Uh, in the '90s, we did as well by the massive tech investment south of the border. We end up benefiting. Uh, whether we want to or not. Yeah, just before we turn to some of the issues concerning this new healthcare paper that I mentioned, I, I think the, your observation, your glasses half full observation, uh, is an important one. That um, you know we've kind of lived with this economic malaise in recent years, and you know part of the explanation was I think policymakers were reluctant to try to um, invoke the animal spirits because of the underlying inflationary challenges. As inflation um, starts to move in a, a more sustainable direction, one wonders, Amanda, if the policy conversation will start to shift even slightly from a hyper focus on price stability to the underlying stagnation that you're getting at. And if we might start to see competing ideas from the different parties on how to effectively jolt the economy to pull that investment into the market to try to stimulate on the supply side of the economy to to bring it into equilibrium with demand on on housing and childcare and healthcare and energy and all of the various areas where we kind of need something of a supply side revolution and one can't help but think that that policy conversation has been impeded a, a bit by the hyper focus on inflation for the for the past couple of years yeah maybe even mayor to, i would take that even one step further sean and say Absolutely, I think focus on inflation, but and then also marry that to the kind of laser focus on uh, social supports that the pandemic kind of brought us to. Because of course, uh, when when you have the privilege of uh, of governing a welfare state where we already have established social systems, you actually already have a kind of a the two pistons of uh, of the economy. Uh, you can focus on growth and you can focus on supports, and we need the governments that do both. And I've said it before, but I mean, surely. Growth is the uh, the kind of central policy aim that governments should be innovating around and um, excited about and and really stretching the barriers on, um, and that will support our social agenda. You, you just can't have a social ad agenda in a zero growth world, and that's we, we do sort of find ourselves at risk of that. I I think you're right. It's we've been kind of distracted with these other um, issues. Time to get back to growth, folks, because nothing works without it. Hi, Pub Podcast listeners. Maybe you've seen in this very same podcast feed a new program called Hub Headlines. It features the best analysis and thinking of our writers each and every morning. It's delivered to you in a convenient audio format in this podcast feed. All you have to do is click and download. Instead of reading Sean Spear, Howard Englund, 
Ginny Roth, any one of the terrific writers contributing to The Hub each daily, you can listen to them on the go. It's convenient. It's built for people like you with busy lives. If you're multitasking, if you enjoy The Hub but can't get on a screen, check out Hub Headlines. We've got you covered with the audio version of The Hub's best commentary and analysis each day. Again, you can grab this all on the same podcast feed that you are listening to this program now. Simply download each morning Hub Headlines and enjoy our best analysis and insights. Here, here. Well said. Um, let's turn to healthcare for our remaining time together. Mm-hmm. You brought to my attention, Amanda, an interesting paper out of the University of British Columbia's intergenerational project called Generation Squeezed, which shows that ongoing healthcare wait times aren't really a function of healthcare shortages per se. It's that we're not dedicating enough public resources to what one might call the social determinants of health, including social services such as education, housing, and income supports. Uh, what's your reaction to this analysis? Do we need to reconceptualize how we think about health and wellness? Yeah, and I think this uh, this report, which was done by Paul Kershaw, um, it, Generation Squeeze is his, um, his, as you know, his umbrella group. This is Get Well Canada is the kind of group that's pursuing this sort of element. And the thing that a it's well timed because it's the one year anniversary of the health accord, and it happens that people will will watch uh, news headlines go by of billions being um, being promised by the feds to various provinces. I think we're up to six provinces now have made uh, you know direct deals with Ottawa for a, an infusion of cash, and what the point of the study is is we we talk as though we hear headlines as though we have a doctor shortage. People can't get a GP. We do not have a doctor shortage. The data simply doesn't support that. Even per capita, even adjusting for uh, immigration, we have more doctors per capita today than we did 20 years ago. So why can't we get in to see our doctors? There's a host of other factors going on. Um, so we'll set that aside. First of all, you and I have talked before about actually not just throwing money at a system, but looking at the, how the system's functioning and what you could do better. The real point of this study, though, is a really old one, which is, um, and again, it should be obvious to Canadians, which is your your social spending on education and uh, support for low-income families and our early childhood uh, supports, all of those things actually bolster your healthcare system. It keeps people from getting sick. So all of the things that you do that, that sort of prevent sickness rather than just uh, treat at the point of illness is a really good investment in your human population. And I was really struck by the day, I, I encourage people to go look at this um, or watch my show this week because I'm going to have Paul on, but uh, to go look at the data because uh, it should just showed what a reversal we've seen. We used to spend uh, more uh, on social spending than we did on healthcare. And now our healthcare spending, that sort of now I'm sick, now I'll see a doctor spending, dwarfs all of that pre- so-called preventative stuff. Uh, so it's a really good, I think, timely reminder that more money doesn't necessarily solve a problem. Rethinking where we're spending and how is probably the answer. At the heart of a lot of Dr. Kershaw's work, uh, as you said, Amanda, is the idea of intergenerational equity, which I happen to think is a key underlying part of contemporary Canadian politics. I spoke over the weekend with one of the country's leading political strategists who set out to me that the experiences of the past several years, starting with the pandemic itself, have contributed to a shift in our politics from a conventional left-right divide to increasingly one marked by intergenerational fault lines. Uh, let me put two questions to you. First, you know, what do you think of that kind of analysis? And second, is it time to rebalance the focus and resources of Canadian governments to better address some of these intergener- intergenerational inequities that Dr. Kershaw and others have documented? 
I mean, I think the intergenerational question is a real one, and you only have to look at sort of the breakdown of government spending um, to know that the, the the biggest group, the biggest category is old people. Um, and so, yes, there is a sort of a disproportionate share. And the other thing, of course, that uh, Generation Squeeze gets at and that we, t we talk a lot about is there's kind of just built in inequities in, um, you know, in a green transition in in the housing market. We're, we, we've kind of created these systems that work for the older people that are just completely failing young people. And so does that become political? It will at some point. Um, it, it, I'm surprised that it hasn't in, to a greater degree. And that's partly, of course, because old people vote more than young people do. Um, so young people get out and vote if you want to start shaking things up. How would the policies change, I guess, is the question I would put back to you, because we, you know, we do have a demographic issue. We do have to support uh, this cohort. And uh, again, the, that older group is sort of where the economy is, the traditional economy lives. So it does make sense for government policies to focus. Healthcare is one place, of course, where old people suck up who we know the last couple of years of our life is when we use the vast majority of expensive healthcare, generally speaking. So this whole notion of preventative social spending, does that work? It would work at the margins for an, an older person, but that's really, that is where young people would benefit. Uh, get them really early and, and keep them well rather than waiting till they're sick. Yeah, my, my grandparents, I don't think are watching our show. So I don't mind saying that, you know, there, there, there probably is a case that we need to reform old age security, you know, re revisit the decision to raise the age back to 67, which is something that the Harper government previously did and the, the subsequent Trudeau government uh, unwound. Rethinking the means test. Uh, I mean, one can, a household can fully benefit from the old age security payment at pretty high income levels. Yeah. You know, and, and there are various other ways in which I think thinking about the, the balance, uh, the intergenerational balance across public spending is uh, something that policymakers probably ought to do. Uh, you know, another area which is more controversial, something that uh, Dr. Kershaw has the scars to prove that he's touched is uh, the primary, the, the capital gains exemption on primary residences, which uh, has been a, a huge boon to uh, older homeowners that, uh, at the same time that a lot of younger Canadians are struggling to enter the market. These are obviously difficult controversial questions. I don't want to sound naive, um, but it seems to me if we're not prepared to at least acknowledge that they, these intergenerational fault lines exist, the risk, of course, is that we end up, you know, effectively creating the conditions for radicalization amongst younger Canadians who, you know, either uh, on one hand sort of become, you know, apathetic, uh, which is sometimes reflected in lower voter a turnout and, and democratic participation, as you say, or kind of genuine radicalization in the sense that they are, uh, that they find, you, you know, a political home in, you know, in and around different political movements. And so in that sense, I, I do think there is some onus on policymakers to be mindful of these in, in, inequities in the extent to which they are having or may have political consequences. I would add just, an, I agree with all of that, um, Sean, I would add another really sinister aspect to this problem, which is it isn't just a clear demarcation between generations, because the, the very wealthiest Canadians are, of course, supporting their children. So you do get a cohort of young people in this country uh, that with, with advantages that others simply don't have. So we're going to get this generational 
wealth transfer. And I would go back to Tom Piketty's uh, book, Capital, uh, that warned us years and years ago of the growing phenomenon that the wealthy are circulating their capital up. It's not trickling through the economy the way it once did. Uh, it's circulating amongst itself and themselves. And when you when that comes to a country like ours where equality uh, and uh, equal access to opportunity has been kind of one of our great sort of, I think one of our kind of cultural touchstones, we are we will see that deteriorate at our peril. Um, so, and I don't know, you know, that that's that, that's a relatively small number, I would say, um, but it keeps it from being a clear cut. Young people are worse off than old people. Some some young people will be fine. Others will, of course, be devastated by, especially the inequity in housing. This is a big one. When you make that the biggest way to achieve wealth, and you cut people out of that market, uh, I don't know what what the the radicalization of that will be, but it's a big one. Yeah, well, well said. You know, as you say, even these distributional questions themselves can be somewhat nuanced. It's a point point worth mentioning. Um, you mentioned your forthcoming episode with Paul Kershaw. I should say, I have a forthcoming episode of the Hub's regular podcast, Hub Dialogues, with University of Maryland professor Melissa Kearney, who's just published a controversial book called "The The Two Parent Privilege." And one of the things that she says that ought to be a priority for policymakers is making young men more marriageable, that one of the reasons we've seen a decline in marriage rates is young men, particularly those with lower levels of education, just aren't attractive as they used to be as marriage partners. And that has consequences for them. It has consequences for their spouses. And of course, it has consequences for their children. Or uh, And so in that sense, I do think a, a policy agenda focused on intergenerational issues in, in general, and in particular, on some of the challenges facing younger Canadians, including those with um, lower levels of human capital who, who may find themselves struggling in today's you know, knowledge economy, as it's often described, are policy areas that you don't hear a lot about in Ottawa, um, but as a kind of hedge against future political disruption, it seems to me would be a, a worthwhile place for our policymakers to, to dedicate more of their, more of their thinking. I, I don't know if you've done the episode yet. I will listen with great interest. I'm as the mother of a, a young adult male. I'm curious to know how we make him more marriageable. Uh, sign me up. Um, although I, uh, I'd also hasten to say that um, yet another kind of description of how wanting young men are is not something I need to hear. Uh, I get a, we, we get plenty of that in this society. And I think in the end, uh, you know, men will be marriageable that we find our level and our partners and there's lots of things we look for that go beyond uh, i understand what you're saying and i've seen this argument before but um it feels i'm gonna i'm just gonna challenge the kind of male bashing piece of it and say i'm i'm tired of hearing kind of what's wrong with men but um as a, the mother of, a, of an 18 almost 19 year old i will be listening with interest well great and uh, no doubt people will be listening to today's conversation as well amanda i want to thank you for joining me and look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks thanks sean Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Amanda Lang, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a review and rating. You can also access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or visit our website at www.thehub.ca. 
I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Gletsch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation.